a few years ago, I saw this video pop up on, I don't know if it was Facebook or YouTube, but it was a young man in his 20s or so who had happened to have some strife with his family, and he ended up being on the streets because of it. He was homeless. And as I listened to this young man in the interview that he was having, he sounded quite spiritual. And not just kind of a lofty spiritual, but very kind of biblically spiritual. I mean, he clearly was dedicated to the Bible. He, he knew its teachings, he could quote it, he often made mention of how he was uh, talking about the teachings of Jesus himself. He seemed to see the world through a biblical lens. He was talking about sin and the gospel and words that we all would use. But then, in one sentence, everything changed. This young man said, I am Jesus. And that changes everything, doesn't it, folks? changes everything when you go from being able to to speak the language that sounds like everything that we all would agree with, and then in an instant, one claim changes all of it. What sounded like a kindred spirit now has immediately stirred questions. I don't know about you, but in my mind, it's stirring questions of mental illness, right? Of what's really going on if this person really thinks they are divine, that they are Jesus, probably a reason why this interview was from the Dr. Phil show. You all probably had similar thoughts. Probably the same thoughts his family had, and that's why he ended up on the show. And by the show, probably many thoughts many Americans had. It's quite a dangerous thing to make claims of divinity. To say, not just, I have a message from God, but to say, I am God changes everything. And it seems that the Jews in our passage in John chapter 8 are facing a very similar problem. As we come to this third part in the fickle faith series, we called it, they are deeply troubled by the claims that Jesus is making. He said, you're slaves, but they thought they were free. He said, you belong to the devil, but they thought they belonged to God. These are audacious words to be saying to an audience of people that are from Israel. To tell them that they are slaves, that they belong to the devil. Can you imagine? So now they're left with the question of how are they going to explain Jesus' words? That's the dilemma that they come to. These are radical words that Jesus is saying. How are they going to explain them? Does Jesus belong in the asylum? Is he going insane? Or is he telling the truth? Is this really God Almighty standing before them? Let's read our passage. John chapter 8. Starting in verse 48. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he 
is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. The question I asked at the beginning is answered quite quickly in the passage. How are the Jews going to explain the radical words that Jesus is saying? And verse 48 gives their explanation. You're a Samaritan and you have a demon. They're searching for ways to identify Jesus so as to prove that they don't need to listen to his words. So as to prove his words to be wrong. So now they need to identify him as something other than what he's claiming he is. Now, for us, the Samaritan comment might seem a little strange, right? I mean, after all, it wasn't that long ago. They knew Jesus' lineage of some sense. They knew where he came from. This is probably a reference back to last week where we saw that they made the sexual immorality comment, right? Where... Really, nobody knows who Jesus' biological father is, so they're hinting here by St. Samaritan that it's possible your father wasn't even a Jew. Right? That's what they're trying to hint at, because then Jesus would be a half-breed, and they called their half-breeds, right, Samaritans, because they were from Samaria. And so they're hinting at that, but that's not really the main problem, because if you notice, as we continue in the passage, they drop the Samaritan, They don't bring it up in the next objection, but what do they bring up? They bring up the demon again. right? So it makes sense here. We see what they're doing here. They're trying to narrow in on this demon thing and say, you're crazy. You belong in the asylum. right? This is their answer to why Jesus is making these claims. He's nuts. In fact... Later, John chapter 10, verse 20, many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? So there we have it. There's this link in their minds between having a demon and going insane. So this is what they're claiming of Jesus. It's their way of dismissing Jesus. They're saying, okay, he's insane, so we're really not of the devil. We're really not slaves. This guy's crazy. And it's not all that different in our world, is it? 
Even if we aren't claiming to be Jesus, but we simply quote the words of Jesus and even mention the existence of the devil or, or the, the idea of sin in some people's minds, and people are quickly turning to us and saying, either that's outdated, or you're insane, or you're brainwashed. Right? We have a world that responds just to the concept of sin as you're tainted. Uh, you're, you're brainwashed in some way. That's, you, you must be going crazy. But Jesus doesn't let that claim go very long. While they say he's insane, he answers them right away. But then he turns the language now to one of honor and glory. And it makes sense, right? If someone's insane, if someone has a demon, then certainly the people can say they don't deserve honor and glory. We don't need to give this honor to someone who's possessed in some sense. But Jesus says, I'm not, I don't have a demon, and now he turns the conversation to honor and glory. As he always does in the Gospel of John, we see it develop the relationship between the Son and the Father here. Verse 49. Jesus tells us that he is honoring his father, which would be incompatible with him having a demon, right? It would be impossible for Jesus to honor God, honor the father, while having a demon inside of him. Those two camps don't work together, right? You can't serve both of those camps. But the problem does not exist in Jesus honoring the father It's in the next phrase where Jesus tells the Jewish people that they dishonor him. The problem lies in the Jews dishonoring Jesus. It was just too radical for them. Jesus was just saying too much that they couldn't wrap their minds around. But notice, if you remember what Jesus has already told them back in chapter 5, verse 23... That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Catch it here. When Jesus says, you dishonor me, he's now saying, you are also dishonoring the one that I am honoring. The one who sent me. So it's not just that they dishonor Jesus, but indirectly they're also dishonoring the Father who sent Jesus. Jesus is making a point here that he's not pursuing after this just for his own glory. Right? That's what they tend to think. They tend to think, okay, well, we can honor the Father, we can, we can honor God, but we don't have to honor Jesus. These, these two things are separate. They're divided from each other. But Jesus reveals the reality to them that he's not seeking his own glory. Jesus isn't saying, everybody just honor me, just glorify me, and that's what we need. Instead, he makes it abundantly clear in verse 50, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it. Jesus is now making reference again back to the Father, saying, the Father is the one who seeks Jesus' glory. 
Jesus didn't randomly show up on earth and say, okay, I've decided there's a new way. I get the glory now. No, this has been the plan from the get-go. The Father has sent the Son that the Son might receive glory. And as the Son receives glory, so also the one who sent him, the Father, receives honor and glory. This has always been in the Father's hands. It's always been his plan for Jesus to get glory. That's what the Father is seeking here. Now you can imagine, what's the question that would come up in the Jews' minds? Well, who gets to determine whether you're telling the truth, Jesus? Who gets to determine whether these words you are saying that the Father is seeking your glory is actually accurate? Who gets to determine that? Well, Jesus addresses that also in verse 50. There is one who seeks it. The same one who seeks the glory of Jesus is the judge. The same one who seeks the glory of Jesus is the judge. Jesus is offering a warning to the Jewish people here. And really, a warning for all human beings. Those who attempt to disregard Jesus' words, to claim he's unstable, or even for any reason to claim that Jesus' words don't need to be obeyed. Well, their final challenge is not just with Jesus. Their final challenge is with God the Father as judge. He is the judge. He is the one who determines whether things are being met or not, if if someone's on one side or the other, but he's also the one who set up what people will be judged on. You catch that. In both of these verses, the Father is seeking the glory of Jesus, and that's what people are going to be judged on. The Father is both Congress and the Supreme Court. He makes the law. Jesus deserves glory. And he also determines who is following that law. Who is seeking Jesus' glory? But it's not a hopeless statement here. It would sound hopeless maybe at first, right? Because if Jesus deserves all glory and the Father's judging who doesn't give the glory to Jesus, Jesus just revealed to these Jews that they aren't giving him the glory, that they are dishonoring him, then it would seem hopeless, but it's not. The next verse, verse 51, Jesus offers a word of salvation Remember, pay close attention to when Jesus especially says, Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The message of salvation is, death will not be the experience of those who keep Jesus' word. Those who agree with the Father's blueprint that Jesus deserves glory and honor, will find themselves submitting to Jesus' words because they believe Jesus deserves the glory and the honor. But people don't just randomly decide to do this. People don't just dishonor Jesus all this time and then just randomly say, oh, I think I'm going to glorify Jesus today. It happens by a rebirth. Right? A being born again, as Jesus described it in John chapter 3. It's as we trust in Jesus paying for our sins, right? And we could define sin there as all the times we didn't seek Jesus' glory. That's sin. Anytime we were seeking our glory rather than Jesus' glory, or someone else's glory rather than Jesus' glory, 
It's in trusting Jesus as he pays the penalty for us not seeking his glory that we then come into new life through Jesus' resurrection where now we actually have a craving in our souls to want to honor Jesus. It's not something we wanted to do before, but in trusting in him, we die to the pursuit of our own glory and now actually have a desire to see Jesus get the glory. And then when we come to our final end, what do we get? There comes this final day, right? He says here that the Father is the judge. So what is our end? We get to do exactly what we pursue now and want now for all eternity. I think sometimes this is where, for both unbelievers and believers, this kind of future judgment day mentality falls apart a little bit. We don't grasp this. Our eternity is going to be exactly what we're already doing now, just in a fuller sense. When it comes to the terms of whose glory and whose honor are we seeking. So for unbelievers, people who don't trust in Jesus, who don't think Jesus deserves glory and honor, they are going to spend eternity still seeking their own glory and honor, but just in a much deeper and fuller sense. And all of us who are seeking Jesus' glory and honor get to seek Jesus' glory and honor for the rest of eternity just in a much more comprehensive way. Our eternity is what we are already doing now just in a much deeper level than we could ever imagine on both sides, good and bad. And so that's the salvation that's offered to these Jewish people. That they never have to see death. Now, of course, Jesus is talking about spiritual death, right? He's saying you never have to be separated from the Father or the Son. You can always be seeking the glory of the Father and the Son for all eternity. You don't have to taste what it would be like to spend eternity seeking your own glory. But again, as we've seen time and time again, this invitation from Jesus stirs a reaction in the people. And in verse 52, they're even more sure of what they've already said about Jesus. Right? Now we know you have a demon. Abraham, the father of all Israel, saw death. Physical death. Remember, there's a distinction here. The death Jesus said they would never see is different than the death that Abraham did see. And then they go on, also the prophets. So Abraham tasted death. The prophets died. And somehow this Jesus standing in front of us is saying that we can avoid what the father of Israel couldn't avoid, what all the prophets, the messengers from God himself couldn't avoid. This guy really is nuts. Verse 53, are you greater than them? You greater than Abraham? Are you greater than the prophets? Who does this guy really think he is? Again, there's this division in their mind, right? That they can pursue God's glory without Jesus' glory. 
They think there's no link between the two. And Jesus actually responds to them in agreement in one sense, verse 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. He agrees with them. You're right. If it's, if it's only me seeking my own glory, then it's really useless. There really is nothing to it. But Jesus, as you remember before already, now he's going to say it again, Jesus isn't just seeking his own glory. It's not just Jesus seeking glory. It is my Father who glorifies me. It's someone else. Someone else is seeking the glory of Jesus. His Father glorifies him. And then, just to add to it, Jesus gives a little more clarity to the identity of this Father for them. My Father glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. If it wasn't obvious yet, it certainly should be now. The very one that the Jewish people claim to have as their God is the same Father Jesus is claiming that is seeking the glory of Jesus. If that's the case, why are these Jews who claim to worship God and who even at the beginning of this conversation claim to believe in Jesus now are accusing Jesus of having a demon? If Jesus' Father is their God, shouldn't they all be on the same page? Jesus is saying, it's my Father. The Jews are saying, he's our God. If both of them are true in saying that, they should be in agreement with each other. Jesus explains it to them. We've heard this before, but we'll see the explanation yet again. Verse 55. But you have not known him. The one that you claim to be your God, you don't really know. You are separated from him. But not so with Jesus, because the next words, I know him. The very one that they claim to know, but don't really know, is the one that Jesus does know. In fact, Jesus goes on just to add a little more to it. He says, actually, if I were to say I didn't know the Father, I would be a liar like you. Remember last week, who lies? The devil is a liar and the father of lies. And Jesus just turns to them again and says, I would be a liar like you. So he's showing them yet again, you don't belong to this God. You don't know this God. You belong to the devil still. But Jesus says, I know him. I know this father. He is my father. And as a result, did you catch it there? I do know him, and I keep his word. You catch the connection here. There's a connection between knowing and keeping. Jesus knows the Father, and thus all that he does honors the Father. But these Jews, do you remember what, do you remember what Jesus just offered them as salvation? If you keep My word, you will never see death. They scoffed at that, proving that they don't know Jesus because they scoffed at the idea of keeping Jesus' words. 
which ultimately proves that they don't know the Father either, because, right, Jesus is honoring the Father. So if they're neglecting to honor Jesus and keep Jesus' words, then clearly they don't know the one who sent Jesus. Those who identify, though, Jesus and the Father correctly will obey the words of Jesus. Because they correctly, accurately understand that Jesus and the Father are both deserving of honor and glory. Knowing and keeping go hand in hand. And then Jesus goes on to use Abraham as an example of this. Of this knowing and keeping. Which clearly has a purpose. Because what did they just say? They're referencing back over and over throughout this whole chapter. They're referencing back to Abraham, aren't they? We're Abraham's offspring. We we belong to Abraham. And now they're like, well, Abraham died. He's the father of all Israel. Are you greater than Abraham is? So now Jesus takes that Abraham and uses him as an example. In verse 56, he says that Abraham rejoiced and was glad at the sight of the day of Jesus. Now, all sorts of questions arise here. Abraham, back in Genesis, somehow rejoiced at the day of Jesus? Now, we could make all sorts of guesses of how much did Abraham really know about Jesus. There's people who who say that this is purely a reference back to the promise made to Abraham. There's, There's also... People who believe that God had a very secret conversation with Abraham, and Abraham knew more than most Old Testament people did about what was to come, actually. We could guess all day long if we wanted to. But it's clear here, Jesus is connecting himself back to Abraham. Somehow, what Abraham was looking forward to and rejoicing in is coming to fruition with Jesus. We at least have to say that much. That's what Jesus is saying here. He's connected to the day that Abraham was hoping to see, or he did see, and was glad. So at least, at the very least, we have to say, Jesus is fulfilling the promises that were made to Abraham. Remember, Abraham was promised through his offspring, all nations would be blessed. And Jesus comes, and through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, what does he do? He, He draws both Jews and Gentiles together. Which, by the way, is all nations. That's basically everybody. So the very person that these Jews trace their entire history to is now said to be rejoicing at the sight of Jesus. Yet his descendants are calling Jesus insane. You don't rejoice at the arrival of someone unless you think they deserve some sort of honor. True? You don't rejoice when you know someone's going to arrive unless you think that person who's arriving deserves some sort of honor and glory at their arrival. Think about it. If the president came to Vivi, he would be met with applause and protest. Right? Or if the Hoosiers basketball team came to play basketball down at the high school they would probably be met with cheers and boos just as well, right? Probably not too many boos, so most of the town would hopefully just be happy that they were here to see us, right? But probably be met with both in some sense. 
You don't rejoice at the arrival of someone unless you think they deserve some sort of glory and honor. Jesus has just revealed that Abraham and his descendants are not on the same team. That they're not seeing glory and honor the same way. That they're thinking about who deserves this glory and honor in two totally different ways. Abraham rejoiced at Jesus' day. Now Jesus' day arrives and Abraham's descendants are saying, you're crazy. So you can anticipate how they might respond to this. Unless they, a miracle happened of them being born again at that very moment, they're probably going to continue down this path of calling Jesus insane. And I think that's what we see implied in verse 57. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Abraham died nearly 2,000 years earlier. And Jesus is standing in front of them, not yet even 50 years old, and yet he declares that he's seen Abraham? I'm sure they're thinking right now, well, this just proves it. He really is nuts. His numbers are way off. The math doesn't lie. Let's gather him and throw him in the asylum, folks. We're done. But then here comes Jesus with his response. This time, no ambiguity about it. None whatsoever. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. We already talked about in previous messages what the phrase I am means it immediately attaches itself back to the burning bush. Right? Where Moses asks God, who should I say is sending me? And God says, tell them I am sent you. And there's clearly a reference back to that. But did you also catch it? That's with Moses. Right? That's, That's an exodus. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham in Genesis... I am. He's pushing it back even further, right? This isn't just that I, I was there with the Moses thing. This was before even Abraham, before Israel was even thought to be a nation. I am. Clearly, while the Jews are thinking this man belongs in the asylum, Jesus is saying, I am the Almighty. No question now. Jesus isn't just honoring the Father. It's not just the Father is seeking the Son's glory. Jesus is God. That's what he's declaring here. He is God. Not to say the Father and the Son are the same, but he is saying, I am that one. Now, this is the final straw for the Jews, isn't it? Verse 59 makes that clear. They picked up stones to throw at him. After all, he did just commit blasphemy, didn't he? And this proves once and for all how incredibly fickle their faith really was. They don't really believe in Jesus. They're still slaves to their sin. They belong to the devil. They can't imagine obedience to Jesus because they can't conceive of a world where Jesus would ever deserve honor and glory. 
And church, it's the same dilemma that each one of us have when we wake up in the morning. Every single person in the world must identify who is Jesus. That's the question. Who is he? Some people neglect him completely. Which, by the way, is still an identification of who he is, right? He's just a nobody if you neglect him. Some claim he's a good man who might have some good nuggets of advice here or there. Some claim, well, he might be similar to God, but he's not really God. And then there's those who say, he is the Almighty. He is God. But arising from that same question of how do you identify Jesus is also the question of what sort of honor and glory does he deserve as a result of that identification? Right? Anybody who doesn't identify Jesus as God are clearly not going to seek the honor and glory of Jesus. But I think also, there, we, obviously, when you identify Jesus as God, there's this agreement, right, that Jesus is deserving of honor and glory then. But I think here lies maybe the, the problem I want to really hit for a second. How much glory does Jesus or God, really deserve. I would hope most of you in here would agree and say, yes, Jesus is God. He's not some insane demoniac as he says these words. But here's the thing we need to, we need to realize. There's a difference between saying that God deserves all honor and glory and having a heart that actually yearns to see Jesus get all that honor and glory. Just because you say Jesus should get all honor and glory doesn't prove your soul is in pursuit of Jesus getting the honor and glory. In fact, I would say that important distinction is exactly where these Jewish people were. They started out the conversation saying, Sure, he deserves honor and glory. We believe in him. But by the end, their hearts are revealed. They don't really think he does deserve it. They're not pursuing it. Even if their words said it, they're not having hearts that actually long to see Jesus receive glory. So the question is, not just can you say he deserves it, do you actually desire that Jesus receives all honor and glory from your life? It is in the souls that have joy in seeing Jesus get glory like Abraham. It is in those souls that we actually see obedience come into play. Let me give you some examples. If you think anything Jesus says in the Bible is too radical for you to live out, then you have to question yourself on how much glory do you think Jesus really deserves? If you think that your anger is too ingrained in you, or that forgiveness of this person is just too hard, or that sharing the gospel with your neighbor is too scary, or that training your kids in God's word is just too time-consuming, or that meeting with other believers every week, or even possibly more than once a week, is just too excessive, you must truly ask your soul a difficult question. Do I really want Jesus to have all glory in my life? 
the radicalness of your obedience to Jesus flows directly from how radically glorious you believe Jesus to be. Let me say that again. The radicalness of your obedience to Jesus flows directly from how radically glorious you believe Jesus is. So let me ask you, how glorious is Jesus? You only commit yourself to obey the words of Jesus when you truly believe that Jesus deserves the honor of having his words obeyed. You only deem Jesus worthy of honor if you identify him correctly. If your obedience to Jesus has never been in connection to pursuing Jesus' glory, you may have had fickle faith. You need to turn away from your attempts to obey on your own strength and instead obey from a soul that has been awakened to the glory of who Jesus really is. But if you're here this morning and you truly have seen the glory of who Jesus is and you long to see Jesus have glory from your life, here's my appeal to you this morning. We all can admit we have areas of our lives where obedience lacks at times, right? My urge for you is when you notice those areas where your obedience to Jesus is lacking, backpedal for a moment. Not backpedal in your obedience, but backpedal in your heart and ask some questions. When I am struggling to obey, who do I identify Jesus as in that moment? Who do I identify Jesus? Either you've misidentified Jesus in your disobedience, or you've neglected Jesus in your disobedience. You can't identify Jesus correctly in your mind, and be disobeying at the same time. You either are misidentifying him or neglecting him completely in disobedience. But then ask yourself the question, once you do correctly identify him, how much honor do I want Jesus to have? It's in those questions that we begin to find awareness as to why we failed to keep Jesus' words in those moments. Either we've misidentified him or we're missing how much glory and honor we really think he deserves. But you know what else? It's as we backpedal in those moments and narrow in, refocus our minds and our hearts on who Jesus really is and how much glory we think he really deserves that we then find our souls surging into obedience. Aroused now from a desire to honor Jesus for who he is. Because in our minds, right, he's no longer a radical, mentally unstable demoniac whose words can be easily dismissed. When we refocus our minds and our hearts, we realize he is the I am. He is the one by whom all things were created and the one who deserves all power, all honor, and all glory forever and ever. Let's pray together.